welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. What a week! I've got a bunch of cases to discuss this week, recorded just before I headed out for my bachelor party of all things. No rest for the wicked, and wicked I am. I hope you enjoy, but first, two important updates. Two big deals to discuss before the case reviews start. First, the Ninth Circuit issued another decision in the ever-active Flores litigation originating in the Central District of California during the 1990s and pertaining to procedures for immigrant children. Based on reporting, it appears that, in essence, the court affirmed that COVID-19 doesn't really affect how the U.S. government needs to treat class member children. Right on. And second, the Supreme Court granted KKTP and Wilmer Hale's petition for certiori and Patel v. Garland, with Ira Kurzban serving as lead counsel. We're going to the Supreme Court, everyone. Honestly, and as I've discussed before, Patel's really complicated, and the Supreme Court granted certiori as to question one which pertains to circuit court jurisdiction. And the U.S. government kind of agrees with us to a significant extent on that issue, so in a way, it's us versus the 11th Circuit. Unfortunately, however, the Supreme Court did not grant certiori on question two, the issue regarding whether the false claim to citizenship inadmissibility provision has a materiality element, as the BIA said it did in Matter of Richmond. But who knows what will happen following the Supreme Court's decision next term. If you have a petition for review pending in the 11th Circuit on most discretionary forms of relief, you might want to ask Oil to agree to stay it pending a decision in Patel. They should agree. And of course, check out episode 17 of the podcast for the review on the Patel and Bonk decision from the 11th Circuit and the January 25th, 2021 special episode with Ed Ramos about the cert petition and jurisdiction. And that is some odds and ends. 
starting off with Johnson v. Chavez, published by the Supreme Court on June 29, 2021. Turns out the Supreme Court was not done with immigration decisions this term. This is a detention case that's not very non-citizen friendly, authored by Justice Alito. Justice Breyer authored a dissent, joined by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor. As we've discussed on the podcast before, non-citizens ordered removed, either by an immigration judge or by DHS following expedited removal proceedings, and who are then physically removed from the U.S., can't enter the U.S. again legally for many years, and no one's ever allowed to enter the United States illegally. And if non-citizens with final orders of removal do, they're subject to reinstatement of those final orders, meaning that they don't even get a hearing and are summarily removed from the United States. To effectuate reinstatement, DHS just kind of needs to prove that the individual is in fact subject to a final order, and then DHS is supposed to execute that prior removal order. Unless, that is, the non-citizen expresses a fear of persecution or torture in the country of removal, and passes a reasonable fear interview. If they do, the non-citizen is placed in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge, where, as the name suggests, they can only apply for withholding of removal under the INA or for Convention Against Torture Protection. They can't apply for asylum, and they don't have a path to LPR status. At the same time, while DHS may arrest and detain non-citizens, quote, pending a decision on whether the non-citizen is to be removed from the United States, end quote, most non-citizens are also eligible for a bond hearing if they're detained. That is, except for the non-citizens described in INA Section 236C. Those non-citizens are subject to, get this, mandatory detention, and cannot ever receive a bond hearing before an IJ, and sometimes spend years in immigration prison. INA Section 236C isn't actually at issue here, I just wanted to say that. What's at issue here is INA Section 241. Under that statute, once an IJ or the BIA orders a non-citizen removed, and that removal order becomes final, DHS generally has 90 days to remove the non-citizen, and must keep them detained during that 90-day period. While the statute allows that 90 days to be extended under certain circumstances, even Justice Alito recognizes that in Zadvidas v. Davis, the Supreme Court, quote, read an implicit limitation into the statute in light of the Constitution's demands and held that a non-citizen may be detained only for a period reasonably necessary to bring about that non-citizen's removal from the United States, end quote, which is, quote, presumptively six months, end quote. So following Zadvidus in 2001, ICE generally has about six months to detain a non-citizen once a removal order becomes final, or they need to release them. Okay, but what about non-citizens in withholding-only proceedings? They've already been ordered removed, and they've been removed, but they're back. They've by definition had a final order of removal reinstated, and can't have their removability re-adjudicated, but they also have an application for relief pending before an immigration judge. Does the law provide them an opportunity to have a judge determine whether they can be released from immigration prison because they are neither dangerous or a flight risk? Or does U.S. law mandate that such individuals remain in prison at $120 a day paid to private prison contractors and for as long as it takes to decide whether they should be provided protection for persecution in the United States? 
the majority held the latter. The majority so held by putting a lot of weight on the fact that even if withholding of removal is granted, a non-citizen is still subject to an order of removal. It's just being withheld as to one specific country. And technically, DHS can remove the non-citizen to a third country. Although, as we all know, DHS almost never in practice actually removes someone to a third country. And that's because non-citizens who fear persecution almost never have dual citizenship, and most countries in the world will not accept a deportee from another country. Nevertheless, because the statute technically allows a non-citizen to be removed to a third country, and for other statutory and INA construction reasons, the majority held that at least for as long as an individual remains in withholding-only proceedings, it's INA Section 241 that governs, and not INA Section 236A. And INA Section 241 is that mandatory 90-day to 6-month detention framework, whereas it's INA Section 236A that allows for a bond hearing. So, because according to the court it's INA Section 241 that applies, hundreds if not thousands of non-dangerous non-citizens will remain detained every year without the opportunity to have a neutral arbitrator decide whether they can be released from immigration prison on a bond. Just a bit more. What happens if withholding-only proceedings take more than six months? Shouldn't Zadvidus and the logic of this decision, based in large part on the fact that a final order of removal exists and Section 241's framework applies, mandate a bond hearing? Admittingly, there's definitely language toward the end of this majority decision for why that's not the case, but I'd be interested in looking into it a bit more, and in filing that habeas petition, if anyone's got one. And a bit relatedly, here, the Supreme Court said that, quote, the order of removal is separate from and antecedent to a grant of withholding of removal, end quote. If true, as quite frankly it is, I believe that provides strong, strong reasons for extending the Nasrallah v. Bar holding from last term, and thereby should allow circuits to review all aspects of the BIA's denial of withholding of removal under the INA, in addition to withholding all aspects of the BIA's denial under the Convention Against Torture. All of that and Nasrallah was discussed way back on episode 6 of the podcast, and so check it out. But again, I believe that this decision here, in addition to the very logic of Nasrallah, provides persuasive arguments for extending Nasrallah's holding from the CAT context and into withholding of removal under the INA. Put it in your circuit petitions and make some good law. And that is Johnson v. Chavez. Next is matter of SLH and LBL, published by the BIA. This decision is about in absentia motions to reopen. The respondents in this case, a mother and a child seeking asylum, were ordered removed in absentia because they did not appear for their removal hearing. However, they timely filed a motion to reopen shortly thereafter, arguing that the court should reopen their case, as the statute and the regulations allow, based on, quote, exceptional circumstances, end quote, that prevented them from attending their hearing. See, although they attended two hearings and filed an application for asylum, the respondents failed to appear for their third, continued, individual hearing. 
they argued in their motion to reopen that they did in fact appear for the hearing on the scheduled date, but were 40 minutes late because, despite hiring a driver, severe weather conditions and traffic accidents had delayed them. Their motion was supported with detailed affidavits from the adult respondent and the driver, and media reports of the terrible weather conditions and the multiple car accidents that had occurred the morning of the hearing in the city in Ohio where the hearing took place. The immigration judge denied the motion to reopen, holding that the respondents should not be provided an opportunity to present their asylum claim because they were 40 minutes late to their hearing. The IJ held that the circumstances identified in their motion to reopen were not sufficiently exceptional, particularly as they are not specifically listed with the other examples of exceptional circumstances at INA Section 240E. The BIA reversed on appeal. And as an initial matter, non-citizens have 180 days to file such motions to reopen, so the motion was very timely. Then, the BIA held that, quote, reasons for a tardy appearance may constitute exceptional circumstances in some situations, even if those reasons are not specified in Section 240E1 of the Act, end quote. Before you get too excited, everybody, the BIA tempered its holding, stating that normally, weather and traffic will not constitute exceptional circumstances for missing a hearing. But, quote, where the non-citizen demonstrates reasons for his or her tardiness beyond commonplace delays, such as a serious and unforeseeable accident preventing a timely appearance, end quote, the standard can be met. Plus, the whole motion to reopen analysis requires a totality of circumstances approach, which should include, but not be limited to, the respondent's prior court appearances and, quote, how late the non-citizens arrive, end quote, if the non-citizens do eventually arrive at the scheduled hearing. The BIA distinguished its decision here from its 1997 holding in matter of SA, which addressed a similar issue, stating that that decision didn't institute a categorical rule against exceptional circumstance showings based on weather and traffic, but rather was more about evidence. The respondent in matter of SA didn't provide enough to support the claim. But the respondents in this case did. Although the BIA cannot engage in fact-finding, it held that the application of facts to the exceptional circumstance standard is actually a legal question that it can review de novo, and it found that standard met here. Case remanded. Congratulations, Farhad Bisethna, for respondents. One more thing of interest. Bit of an open question whether the respondents failed to appear at all here such that an in absentia removal order was even appropriate. After all, the respondents did appear. They were just 40 minutes late. In a footnote, the BIA expressly left this issue open, that is, when an individual does show up to their hearing, but is just late, whether or not an immigration judge can and should issue an in absentia removal order. But the BIA did not address the issue because it granted the motion to reopen on the exceptional circumstances ground. FYI. And that is matter of SLH and LBL. Next is Perez Trujillo v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on June 28, 2021. This case is about particular social groups and discretion for adjustment of status. Really, it's two cases in one. 
Mr. Perez Trujillo is from El Salvador and came to the U.S. in 2007 at the age of 13. And he sought asylum, claiming a fear of MS-13 based in part on the fact that he used to be a gang member. Again, 13-year-old former gang member, apparently, in removal proceedings. What a world. Unsure whether he had an attorney or not, but the IJ denied asylum and related relief. The BIA affirmed, and the First Circuit heard oral argument on the petition for review in 2012. But during the petition, Mr. Perez Trujillo began the process to obtain Special Immigrant Juvenile Status, or SIJ status, discussed last week in the BIA's Matter of Moradel decision. USCIS granted the SIJ petition, making Mr. Perez Trujillo prima facie eligible to adjust to lawful permanent resident status. But by that time, he already had that final order of removal from the BIA. So the First Circuit sent everything back to the BIA, which made its way back to the immigration judge. In 2016 on remand, an IJ granted Mr. Perez Trujillo's adjustment of status application, but the BIA reversed on a matter of discretion, presumably due to some gang stuff, but the decision's unclear. Everything then made its way back to the First Circuit, and these cases are so old that the First Circuit substituted Merrick Garland for both Jeff Sessions on one and Eric Holder on the other. The First Circuit denied the asylum petition for review, but remanded on the adjustment of status one. On asylum, the First Circuit primarily held that the BIA did not err in rejecting Mr. Perez Trujillo's particular social group of, quote, young male Salvadoran students who are forcibly recruited into gangs, refuse gang orders, and leave the gang, end quote. And it affirmed the BIA by finding, at least in this case, that that particular social group was not appreciably socially distinct, also relying heavily on its 2010 decision in Larios v. Holder which had rejected the particular social group of, quote, young Guatemalan men recruited by gang members who resist such recruitment, end quote. So pretty similar. The First Circuit also upheld the BIA's Convention Against Torture denial, which, as we know, need not be on account of a protected ground, but must entail what's usually considered a more difficult-to-meet connection to the country's government. In this case, the First Circuit affirmed the BIA's finding that the incidents that Mr. Perez Trujillo experienced and that police did not assist him on weren't conclusive on the question, particularly as the country condition reports apparently indicate that the Salvadoran government is trying to combat MS-13. At a minimum, the record doesn't compel a conclusion that the Salvadoran government acquiesces or consents to the torture that Mr. Perez Trujillo fears. But turning to adjustment of status, the First Circuit remanded. First it held, no small holding, that it had jurisdiction to review the issue notwithstanding the INA's jurisdiction bar. Insofar as Mr. Perez Trujillo brought a constitutional or a legal challenge to the BIA's decision. The First Circuit held here that Mr. Perez Trujillo did bring a legal challenge. Through very smart counsel, he argued that the BIA's 1970 decision, Matter of Arai, required the BIA to consider the hardship that Mr. Perez Trujillo would suffer in El Salvador as part of its discretionary analysis, and that the BIA had failed to do so here. That's a legal challenge, so says the First Circuit, and it passes the jurisdiction-stripping provisions of the INA. 
The First Circuit held that while the BIA did actually consider the general violence and hardship Mr. Perez Trujillo might face in El Salvador, the BIA failed to conduct an individualized analysis particular to Mr. Perez Trujillo's circumstances. So kind of requiring like a mini-asylum cat analysis within the discretionary ruling. The First Circuit held that Matter of Rai requires this individualized analysis, and that the BIA failed to perform this required analysis, and that that analysis would likely be favorable to Mr. Perez Trujillo, is all the more telling, given the country condition evidence of record, which shows how bad conditions are for former gang members in El Salvador. Plus, in Mr. Perez Trujillo's specific case, a state court already certified that he is the victim of, quote, parental abuse, neglect, or abandonment, end quote. Something we know because USCIS then approved his SIJ status. And so that also needs to be considered in the BIA's discretionary analysis, and the BIA failed to do so. So the case is going back again. Nice work, counsel. Great ruling on discretion. Congrats to Gregory Romanovsky, Sang Yu Kim, and Giles Bissonnette for petitioner, in addition to the ACLU of New Hampshire. One more thing on asylum. So in this case, the First Circuit actually agreed with the BIA to find that there was, quote, substantial evidence, end quote, based largely on country condition reports that, quote, former gang members in general face a heightened risk of encountering violence, end quote, that rises to the level of torture, and that it is, quote, virtually impossible, end quote, for former gang members to get out of a gang in El Salvador. Although the BIA and the First Circuit denied cat protection based on that state actor prong, this likelihood of torture language is worth noting, and possibly worth relying on, as is the apparently very detailed Harvard Law Human Rights Clinic report cited too extensively in this decision. And that is Paris Trujillo v. Garland. Next up is Portillo Flores v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on June 29, 2021. In this decision, the Fourth Circuit went in bonk on a case discussed on episode 19 of the podcast. Judge Thacker was in dissent on the panel decision back then, but is now in the majority on the en banc decision, and wrote it. This decision is about asylum, gangs, and children. As I relayed way back when, Mr. Portillo Flores came to the U.S. as a 15-year-old unaccompanied minor from El Salvador. He encountered immigration officials shortly thereafter and applied for asylum, claiming a fear of the international criminal organization, MS-13. In El Salvador, he had been approached, threatened, and beaten numerous times because a local MS-13 leader wanted to date his sister. On one occasion, MS-13 almost beat Mr. Portillo Flores to death. They also threatened to kill his sister, who kept rejecting the gang member. The sister eventually fled to the U.S., but the threats continued against Mr. Portillo Flores in El Salvador. So he fled to his uncle's house in El Salvador, but he never left the house, and while in hiding, the gang members showed up at his mother's house with uniformed police officers and threatened to kill Mr. Portillo Flores if he returned. He didn't report anything to the police because he believed that they worked with MS-13, 
They had, after all, showed up at the mother's house with the gang members. Mr. Portillo Flores eventually fled to the U.S. and filed for asylum based on his membership in the particular social group comprised of members of his sister's family. Among other evidence, both the sister and Mr. Portillo Flores testified in removal proceedings, and the IJ found them credible. However, the IJ and the BIA denied the asylum application and the claims for withholding of removal under the INA and for Convention Against Torture Protection for a variety of reasons. The Fourth Circuit affirmed, but now, the full Fourth Circuit has vacated and remanded the matter in a big way. First on past persecution, quote, We repeatedly have held that death threats qualify as persecution, end quote, with or without a showing of physical harm. Therefore, the IJ and the BIA erred when they rejected the past persecution finding based solely on the fact that apparently Mr. Portillo Flores's quote, injuries did not require medical attention, end quote. That flaw alone provided, quote, crystal clear, end quote, reasons for remand. And although that was the holding even without this second rationale, this is particularly the case because Mr. Portillo Flores was 15 years old at the time that this all happened. Agreeing with the 2nd, 6th, 7th, and 9th circuits, quote, age can be a critical factor in the adjudication of asylum claims and may bear heavily, end quote, on the analysis. And this is further relevant because Mr. Portillo Flores' sister was threatened when he was a child, and a quote, child is part of the family, the wound to the family is personal, and the trauma apt to be lasting, end quote. So to be similarly crystal clear, quote, where a petitioner is a child at the time of the alleged persecution, the immigration court must take the child's age into account in analyzing past persecution and fear of future persecution for purposes of asylum, end quote. This means that even if threats alone sometimes won't be past persecution to an adult, they likely will satisfy that standard if the victim is a child. Turning then to Nexus, the Fourth Circuit first noted that Oil didn't defend the BIA's Nexus analysis, and instead tried to get the Fourth Circuit to affirm the BIA on different grounds. But as those arguments failed, the Fourth Circuit turned to Nexus and held that, quote, this court has plainly held that an individual's membership in his nuclear family is a particular social group, end quote. By the way, so is the BIA following the Attorney General's vacation of matter of LEA II two weeks ago. The Fourth Circuit held here that a reasonable adjudicator would be compelled to conclude that the persecution was on account of this particular social group. Mr. Portillo Flores was targeted and beat, after all, because he was his sister's brother. The Fourth Circuit also rejected the BIA's determination that since Mr. Portillo Flores had since become 18 and was no longer a child, a fundamental change of circumstances had occurred, mostly because the BIA didn't conduct the proper analysis below. Addressing then whether the Salvadoran government is able and willing to control MS-13, the argument that oil wanted to have, the Fourth Circuit held, after finding the issue sufficiently exhausted, that Mr. Portillo Flores was excused from having to report the harm to police, because again, he and others credibly testified that the police were in league with MS-13. Plus, he was a child at the time, and quote, due to their young age, Children may not be able to approach law enforcement officials or articulate their fear or complaint in the same way as adults. End quote. 
Finally, in any event, contrary to the IJ's decision, and honestly some decisions analyzed on the pod just last week and that First Circuit decision just discussed, quote, purported Salvadoran efforts to combat gang violence and corruption in general do not excuse the agency's failure to support its decision with the proper legal and factual analysis of petitioners' specific circumstances, end quote. Emphasis in the original. Big episode and the full decision here is 71 pages, so respectfully, I will not be reviewing the dissent. Monster holding for any asylum-type claim with a connection to children. The case will be remanded, and if asylum is not granted, based on some of the language in this decision, I'll be shocked. Congratulations to Paul Hughes, Ayla, that group of progressive former IJs and BIA members, and a whole page worth of lawyers and other entities on the win. Honestly, it's looking like the Fourth Circuit has become the most favorable circuit for asylum seekers, if anyone was wondering. And that is Portillo Flores v. Garland. Shifting gears, we have Adiko v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on July 1st, 2021. Mr. Adiko is from Nigeria. He entered the U.S. on a student visa in 2011, and he became a lawful permanent resident in 2013. But in January 2017, he pled guilty to online solicitation of a minor in violation of Section 33.021c of the Texas Penal Code and he was sentenced to 10 years of community supervision and ordered to pay a fine. DHS therefore initiated removal proceedings and alleged that Mr. Adiko should lose his LPR status for a variety of reasons. But as relevant to this decision, DHS alleged that the conviction matched the removable offense at INA Section 237A2EI, a conviction for a, quote, crime of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment, end quote. The immigration judge initially terminated proceedings, but the BIA reversed on appeal, and on remand, the IJ, bound by the BIA, held that yes indeed, the conviction matches Section 237A2EI. And by the way, Mr. Adiko put on one heck of a fight on this very complicated issue on appeal and before the immigration judge, from detention and pro se. And he represented himself at the Fifth Circuit, too. The Fifth Circuit last took up this issue in Garcia v. Barr, discussed by my fiancé Kim on episode 15 of the podcast. In that decision, the Fifth Circuit deferred to the BIA's definition of the phrase child abuse, neglect, or abandonment in matter of Velasquez Herrera and matter of Saram. So with the legal definition defined already, that leaves only one question. Does online solicitation of a minor in violation of section 33.021c of the Texas Penal Code match the definition. The Fifth Circuit held that it does. Applying the categorical approach, as it must, the Fifth Circuit first stated the BIA's definition as requiring, quote, intentional, knowing, reckless, or criminally negligent act or omission that constitutes maltreatment of a child, or that impairs a child's physical or mental well-being, including sexual abuse or exploitation, end quote. The removal provision does not require proof of injury to the child, but rather is, quote, sufficiently broad to encompass endangerment-type crimes, end quote. Here, the Texas online solicitation statute requires that a defendant knowingly solicit a minor with the intent to engage in, at a minimum, sexual contact. 
Texas defines a minor as anyone younger than 17, and includes situations where the online solicitor believes that the individual on the other end of the computer is younger than 17. Texas also includes an affirmative defense if the defendant is less than three years older than the minor and the minor consented. Therefore, in applying Moncrieff's minimum conduct analysis for the categorical approach, quote, the minimum conduct criminalized would be the knowing solicitation of a victim who is believed to be almost 17 by a perpetrator who just turned 20, end quote. The Fifth Circuit held that even this least culpable conduct matched the BIA's definition of the removable offense, and so the conviction is a categorical match. The criminal statute requires a knowing mental state, and it requires an illegal sexual act, which constitutes, according to the Fifth Circuit, quote, maltreatment of a child, end quote. Now true, the Supreme Court held in Esquivel-Quintana v. Sessions in 2017 that the sexual abuse of a minor aggravated felony at INA Section 101-A43-A generally only applies, and at least when we're talking statutory rape-type offenses, to criminal statutes requiring that the minor be younger than 16 years old. But as the Fifth Circuit and other courts have explained, that definition of a minor does not apply to the ground of removability here, at INA Section 237-A2EI. So, Mr. Adiko is removable. I don't hate the Fifth Circuit applying that least culpable conduct test and not mentioning the realistic probability test, though. Just a bit more. In concurrence, Judge Haynes believes herself bound by Garcia v. Barr, but disagrees with it, particularly in light of the statutory analysis used by the Supreme Court in Niz Chavez. Not sure what Judge Haynes sees that I don't, but she might be talking about that Esquivel-Quintana issue that I just mentioned about the victim's age. After all, the two child abuse removability statutes are pretty similar. I'd be interested to find out more, Judge Haynes. And again, this was a pro se case, argued tooth and nail, and well it appears, on some of the hardest issues in immigration law, and more which I didn't even discuss. Not condoning his crime, but well litigated, Mr. Adiko. And that is Adiko v. Garland. Next is Parzic v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on June 28, 2021. This case is about the categorical approach and Illinois robbery. Mr. Parzic is from Poland and entered the United States as a lawful permanent resident way back in 1967, just before the summer of love. For reasons unexplained, he never naturalized, and in 2011 and then again in 2015, he was convicted of burglary in violation of 720 of the Illinois Criminal Statute, 5-19-1, specifically, knowingly and without authority, remaining in a building, here storage lockers. DHS alleged that the convictions were both aggravated felonies and crimes involving moral turpitude, making Mr. Parzic potentially removable under INA Sections 237A2AII and A2AIII. The matter went up and down from the immigration judge and the BIA twice, resulting in three different IJ decisions that eventually resulted in a finding of removability that the BIA affirmed. 
but the Seventh Circuit then remanded it back to the BIA on Oil's own motion, and the BIA stood by its final decision. So here we are. DHS alleged that the conviction matched a CIMT, and additionally, an attempt to commit a theft-type aggravated felony as defined at INA Section 101A43G and U. But the legal question between those separate grounds of removability is largely the same, because the Illinois criminal statute is very broad. It allows for conviction for unlawful entry, quote, with intent to commit therein a felony or theft, end quote. Even the BIA agrees that that's not a CIMT or an aggravated felony theft offense in all circumstances, because it essentially criminalizes commission of any felony. Or put another way, even the BIA agrees that the state crime is not categorically a match to a removable offense in all instances, because the state statute criminalizes more conduct than does a CIMT or an attempt to commit a theft-type aggravated felony. That means that the question comes down to divisibility. Is the crime that a defendant intended to commit an element that a jury must determine, which would make the statute divisible? Or is the crime that a defendant intended to commit merely a means of committing the offense, which would make the state statute non-divisible and win the day for Mr. Parsich? In the Seventh Circuit, quote, Factual means are circumstances or events that need not be specifically proven, end quote. Here, the Seventh Circuit turned to Illinois case law to answer the questions, as it should if the text is unclear, and determined that, quote, Illinois courts have held that a defendant may be charged with unlawful entry with intent to commit multiple crimes, but convicted of only one burglary offense, end quote. That strongly indicates that the specific crime an individual intended to commit when they unlawfully entered a structure is simply a means of committing an offense that a jury need not expressly determine. Plus, the statute itself punishes conviction with the same criminal sentence, regardless of what the underlying intent of the unlawful entry was. Again, as we've discussed many times on the podcast, that strongly supports a means rather than elements finding. The court rejected Oyl's argument on petition that the underlying offense that a defendant intended to commit is an element of the crime. In Illinois, juries are instructed to fill in the blank of what the underlying offense a defendant intended to commit was. Not gonna lie, that seems to strongly indicate that the underlying offense intended is an element. But the Seventh Circuit disagreed, holding that the jury instructions don't say whether juries can put multiple offenses in that blank. And if they could, that would support a means finding. The court squarely rejected Oyl's urging that they take a Mathis peek at the charging and other conviction documents in the case, noting that the peek is only potentially an option to determine whether features of a statute are elements or means, and that you can only reach the peak if all other sources, including state law and the statutory text, are unclear. Not the case here. And this was despite the fact that Mr. Parzich was actually charged with intending to commit a theft. In addition to the fact that the court shouldn't even reach the Mathis Peak, Illinois law, quote, does not prohibit the government from including factual allegations in an indictment, end quote. 
Or put another way, Illinois putting legally irrelevant stuff in its charging document for criminal defendants has no effect on the categorical approach. Right on. After over 50 years in the U.S. and, like a million decisions, Mr. Parzich is not removable. Hard-fought win, counsel. And in case you're wondering, a Google search confirmed what I believed to be true. Following this decision, and if non-citizens, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern would not be removable for their attempted burglary of the McAllister home in Winnetka, Illinois, in Home Alone 1. Their actions in Home Alone 2, however, would almost surely subject them to removal, if only for their crossing state lines to mess with that bird lady. And that is Parzich v. Garland. Sticking with the Seventh Circuit, we have Mejia Padilla v. Garland, published on June 29, 2021. This case is about motions to reopen and effective NTAs. Mr. Mejia Padilla is from Mexico and entered the U.S. without authorization in 2005. He's married to a non-citizen and has two U.S. citizen children, and he was placed in removal proceedings in 2011 after being served with a notice to appear that did not have the date and time of his first removal hearing. Accordingly, that NTA violated the INA's requirements for NTAs, as explained in the Supreme Court's Pereira and Nis Chavez decisions. But all that happened well before those Supreme Court decisions. At the time, the non-compliant NTA stopped the 10-year clock required for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B, and so Mr. Mejia Padilla, pro se, applied for and accepted voluntary departure to Mexico but he did not voluntarily depart the United States. ICE knew about him, but never removed him, possibly because of the U.S. citizen children. Less than 30 days after Pereira was issued in 2018, Mr. Mejia Padilla filed a motion to reopen with the IJ, arguing that now, under Pereira, the 10-year continuous presence clock had never stopped, because DHS never served him with a compliant NTA. And so now, in 2018, at the time of the motion, he was eligible to apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal. The IJ denied the motion, based on the BIA's decision in matter of Bermuda's Coda, issued after Mr. Mejia Padilla's motion to reopen. The IJ held correctly that matter of Bermuda's Coda and a few other decisions like it essentially foreclosed Mr. Mejia Padilla's argument. Because Mr. Mejia Padilla, like so many, received a notice of hearing with the missing information about the court hearing shortly after receiving the NTA. But of course, the Supreme Court implicitly overruled that portion of matter of Bermuda's Coda and other similar BIA decisions in Niz Chavez last April. A notice of hearing does not stop the 10-year continuous presence clock required of non-LPR cancellation of removal, where an NTA does not comply with the statutory requirements. It seems like the Seventh Circuit let Mr. Mejia Padilla's petition remain pending until the Supreme Court issued Nis Chavez, but then dismissed the petition. First, it deemed the argument time-barred. It held that Mr. Mejia Padilla should have brought up the defect in the NTA years ago during his removal proceedings, despite the fact that Pereira was not issued until 2018. 
So I guess according to the Seventh Circuit, Mr. Mejia Padilla should have applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal, despite the fact that he clearly didn't have the 10 years if a non-compliant NTA stops the clock, should have had his application rejected, should have taken that issue all the way up to the BIA and Seventh Circuit, and then should have had the entire issue taken to the Supreme Court. And the Seventh Circuit recognized that while all circuit precedent in all circuits essentially foreclosed the argument until Pereira, Pereira was based on, quote, the statute's plain language required, and consequently, nothing prevented Mejia from raising the defect in 2012, end quote. Accordingly, Mr. Mejia Padilla's motion to reopen is six years untimely, and according to the Seventh Circuit, there are no grounds to equitably toll the 90-day motion to reopen deadline. Plus, according to this panel, the issue was kind of foreclosed by the Seventh Circuit's decision last year in Chen B. Bar, discussed on Episode 5 of the podcast. Mr. Mejia Padilla, therefore, lost. The Seventh Circuit shut the door on Mr. Mejia Padilla and many more like him after opening a similar door just last week for Mr. Avia de la Rosa and many more like him. And that is Mejia Padilla v. Garland. Finally, we come to Brathwaite v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on July 1st, 2021. This case is about the finality of criminal convictions. Whether a state conviction makes a non-citizen removable is a complicated analysis, as so often discussed on the podcast. In fact, as we talked about last week, immigration law even has its own definition of conviction at INA Section 101A48 and it's usually different than the state's own definition of a conviction, even though the conviction arises in the state. Confusing. Well, there's another related issue as well. When does a conviction become final, such that an individual can be removed from the United States on the basis of that conviction? After all, when someone's convicted at the trial court level, they can appeal it, almost always as a matter of right, to an appellate court. The BIA readdressed this issue in its 2018 decision matter of J.M. Acosta and held that a conviction is final and therefore has immigration consequences once direct appellate review is exhausted or waived. Fine, we all kind of agree on that, to be honest with you. But then, as so often occurred during the Trump years, the BIA, quote, put new limits on this principle, end quote, for late-filed appeals. Specifically, the BIA held that, quote, once the initial time period for filing an appeal expires, a presumption of finality attaches, and the non-citizen bears the burden of proving that, one, the appeal has been filed and is pending, and two, the appeal relates to the issue of guilt or innocence, or concerns a substantive defect in the criminal proceedings, end quote. So the BIA instituted a presumption and burden-shifting framework to apply in all but the most timely of direct appeals. Enter Mr. Brathwaite, a long-time lawful permanent resident and non-citizen from Trinidad and Tobago. In January 2018, he was convicted of what is almost surely an aggravated felony at the trial court level, meaning that he is removable, if the conviction is final. 
In late 2018, DHS initiated removal proceedings, and in February 2019, Mr. Brathwaite filed a motion with the New York Appellate Court, pursuant to New York Criminal Procedure Law, Section 460.30, for an extension of time to file his appeal, which was granted by the New York Appellate Court. So Mr. Brathwaite moved to terminate his removal proceedings, arguing that his conviction wasn't final meaning that it couldn't serve as the basis for him to lose his green card. The IJ and then the BIA denied, based on a finding that because the appeal wasn't filed within the standard time allowed by New York, and because Mr. Brathwaite hadn't produced sufficient evidence in immigration court to establish that his untimely appeal related to his guilt or innocence, the IJ and the BIA would presume that he has a final conviction. I don't know, guys. Looks like bad facts make bad law for the BIA, too. I don't know why the BIA would take this position and risk matter of J.M. Acosta on these facts. The dude was clearly granted an extension to file his direct appeal from the New York State Court. And whatever it means for a conviction to be final for immigration purposes, it can't include that, can it? It cannot. At least in the Second Circuit which also, by the way, refused to grant Chevron deference to matter of J.M. Acosta along the way. As an initial matter, the Second Circuit held that yes, the INA's definition of the word conviction is ambiguous, at least when it comes to the finality of a conviction, meaning that the Second Circuit must defer, under the Chevron Supreme Court decision, to the BIA's reasonable interpretation of that word. The Second Circuit so held after an extension recitation of the history of the definition of conviction under immigration law since at least the 1950s. So check it out if you're interested. Also in so holding, it appears that the Second Circuit has entered a circuit split to varying degrees and for various reasons, with at least the 1st, 3rd, 7th, 9th, and 10th circuits. Precisely what degree of finality is required for a state court conviction to have immigration consequences seems to be a bit all over the place. So because it's ambiguous, Chevron deference is in play, at least in the Second Circuit. And the Second Circuit must defer to the BIA's reasonable interpretation of when a conviction becomes final for immigration purposes. But then the Second Circuit held that no. Matter of J.M. Acosta is not a reasonable interpretation of that ambiguous statutory phrase. To get there, the Second Circuit agreed with the BIA and J.M. Acosta that in the IRIRA legislation, Congress derived the definition of conviction almost verbatim from a prior BIA decision, Matter of Oscock. And while Congress clearly intended that IRIRA get rid of one part of the Oscock analysis, nothing indicates that Congress intended to get rid of the finality requirement. So with finality as the standard, the Second Circuit held that while it may be reasonable to put some limits on the type of appeals that are relevant for immigration purposes and can preclude finality, the BIA can't do what it blanketly did in matter of J.M. Acosta, and as applied here. It can't implement a, quote, burden-shifting regime and evidentiary standard, end quote, to require that a non-citizen establish that his merits-based appeal on direct appeal is not final. It appears to me that, simply put, a merits-based direct appeal will preclude an immigration judge from finding that a conviction is final, even if that direct appeal occurs only after a state court extended the filing deadline to file the appeal. And at least in the Second Circuit. 
Congratulations to John Peng and others from Prisoners Legal Services of New York, and to Mark Borkink and other entities on Amicus for the big win. A bit more before I free you all. Perhaps the BIA chose this hill for J.M. Acosta, because in New York at least, quote, a motion for a late notice of appeal may be filed within one year and 30 days of the criminal judgment, end quote. End quote. Such late filings are a matter of course in New York, end quote. But the Second Circuit doesn't care, and neither should you, Second Circuit practitioners. Just a word of caution, though. I'm a bit unclear whether this holding applies only where, as with Mr. Brathwaite, the motion for an extension to file an appeal is actually granted by the state court, or if additionally, a conviction will remain non-final while a motion is pending to extend the filing deadline on direct appeal. You tell me. Quote, We therefore conclude that the BIA's interpretation of the IRIRA to require a non-citizen pursuing a late-filed appeal to show that the appeal is merits-based at the time the appeal is noticed is arbitrary and unreasonable, end quote. I don't know. And that is Brathwaite v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.